Preface and Chapter 1 of A School History of the Great War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A School History of the Great War by McKinley, Coulomb, and Gerson. Preface and Chapter 1. Preface This brief history of the world's greatest war was prepared upon the suggestion of the National Board for Historical Service. Its purpose is to expand into a historical narrative the outline of the study of the war which the authors prepared for the board, and which was published by the United States Bureau of Education as Teacher's Leaflet No. 4, in August 1918. The arrangement of chapters and the choice of topics have been largely determined by the various headings in the outline for the course in grades 7 and 8. The authors trust that the simple presentation here given may aid in developing a national comprehension of the issues involved in the war, and they hope it may play some part in preparing the American people for the solution of the great problems which lie immediately before us. End Preface Chapter 1 Europe Before the Great War To understand the Great War, it is not sufficient to read the daily happenings of military and naval events as they are told in newspapers and magazines. We must go back to the facts of today, and find in national history and personal ambition the causes of the present struggle. Years of preparation were necessary before German military leaders could convert a nation to their views, or get ready the men, munitions, and transportation for the war they wanted. Conflicts of races for hundreds of years have made the southeastern part of Europe a firebrand in international affairs. The course of the Russian Revolution has been determined largely by the history of the Russian people, and of the Russian rulers during the past two centuries. The entrance of England and Italy into the war against Germany was, in each case brought about by causes, which came into existence long before August 1914. A person who understands, even in part, the causes of this great struggle, will be in a better position to realize why America entered the war and what our nation is fighting for. And better yet, he will be more ready to take part in settling the many problems of peace which must come after the war is over. For these reasons, the first few chapters of this book are devoted to a study of the important facts of recent European history. A Hundred Years Ago It is remarkable that almost exactly a century before the present World War, Europe was engaged in a somewhat similar struggle to prevent an ambitious French general, Napoleon Bonaparte, from becoming the ruler of all that continent, and of America as well. He had conquered or intimidated nearly all the states of Europe, Austria, Prussia, Russia, Spain, etc., except Great Britain. He once planned a great settlement on the Mississippi River, and so alarmed President Jefferson that the latter said the United States might be compelled to marry themselves to the British fleet and nation. But England's navy kept control of the seas. Napoleon's colony in North America was never founded. And at last, the peoples of Europe rose against their conqueror, and in the Battle of Waterloo, June 18, 1815, finally overthrew him. Europe since 1815. After the downfall of Napoleon, the rulers of Europe met in conference at Vienna and sought to restore conditions as they had been before the war. They were particularly anxious that the great masses of the people in their several nations should continue to respect what was termed the divine right of kings to rule over their subjects. They did not, except in Great Britain, believe in representative governments. They feared free speech and independent newspapers and liberal educational institutions. They hated all kinds of popular movements by which the inhabitants of any country 
might throw off the monarch's yoke and secure a share in their own government. For over thirty years, the Holy Allies, the name applied to the monarchs of Austria, Prussia, and Russia, succeeded tolerably well in keeping the peoples in subjugation. But they had many differences to face, and after 1848, their policy was largely given up. Democratic Movements During the 19th century, the people of Europe were restive under the rule of kings, and gradually governments controlled in greater or less degree by the people were established. Almost every decade saw popular uprising in some of the European states. About 1820, insurrections occurred in Greece, in Spain, and in southern Italy, and the Spanish-American colonies revolted from the mother country. In 1830, popular uprisings took place in France, Belgium, Germany, Poland, and other places. In 1848, a far more serious movement occurred, which overthrew the French monarchy and established a republic. From France, the flame of liberty lighted fires of insurrection in Germany, Austria, Poland, and Italy. Similar attempts were made at later times. As a result of these popular uprisings and of the growing education of all classes of the people, manhood suffrage and representative institutions were established in most of the European states. National Aspirations the Holy Allies had refused to recognize the right of nations to independent existence. They had bartered peoples and provinces as if they were chattels and pawns in a game. But when the peoples tried to found democratic governments, they often discovered that the quickest and surest way was to unite under one government all who belonged to a given nationality. Thus the last hundred years in Europe has witnessed the erection of a number of new national states created by throwing off the yoke of some foreign ruler. Among the new nations thus established were 1. Belgium, freed from the Kingdom of Holland, 2. Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Albania, freed from Turkish rule, 3. Italy, united out of territories controlled by petty sovereigns and Austrian rulers, 4. Norway, separated from Sweden. The same period saw also the unification of a number of German states into the German Empire. But during this time, several races were unsuccessful in obtaining independence, among which we may note the Poles, in Russia, Prussia, and Austria, the Czechs, Czechs, or Bohemians, in northern Austria, the Finns, in the northwestern part of the Russian Empire, and the Slavic people, in the southern part of Austria-Hungary. Industrial Development The 19th century was not only a period of political change in Europe, it was also a time of great change in the general welfare of the people. It witnessed a remarkable alteration in everyday employments and habits. In 1800, a great part of the population was engaged in agriculture. Manufacturing and commerce were looked upon as of minor importance. The goods that were produced were made by hand labor in the workman's own home. Beginning first in England about 1750 and extending to the continent between 1820 and 1860, there came a great industrial change. The steam engine was applied to spinning, weaving, and countless other operations which previously had been performed by hand. Steam engines could not, of course, be installed in every small cottage, hence a number of machines were put in one factory to be run by one steam engine. The workers left their small huts and gardens in the country and came to live in towns and cities. After the steam engine came steam transportation on land and water. Then followed an enormous demand for coal iron, steel, and other metals. More goods could be produced in the factories than were needed for the people at home. Hence arose more extended commerce and the search for foreign markets. Colonial Expansion 
In the 16th and 17th centuries, Spain, Portugal, France, and England settled the American continents and parts of Asia. By a series of wars in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Dutch secured part of the possessions of Spain and Portugal, and England obtained almost all of the French colonial territories. In the 18th century, the 13 English colonies on the Atlantic seaboard made good their independence, and in the 19th, Spain lost all of her vast possessions in America. During the early 19th century, Great Britain, in spite of the loss of the 13 colonies, was by far the most successful colonizing country, and her possessions were to be found in Canada, India, the East and West Indies, Australia, and Africa. Leaders of other nations in Europe thought these colonies of Great Britain were the cause of her wealth and prosperity. Naturally, they too tried to found colonies in those parts of the world not occupied by Europeans. They hoped by this means to extend their power, to find homes for their surplus population, and to obtain markets for their new manufactured goods. Thus Africa was parceled out amongst France, Germany, Great Britain, Portugal, Belgium, Spain, and Italy. The islands of the Pacific were seized in the same manner. Proposals for a partition of China were made by Germany, Russia, Japan, France, and Great Britain. And if it had not been for the American demands for the open door of trade and for the territorial integrity of China, that nation probably would have shared the fate of Africa. The noteworthy fact about this rivalry for colonies is that almost the entire world, except China and Japan, came under the domination of Europeans and their descendants. Having noted a few general features of European history during the 19th century, we shall now take up in turn each of the more important countries. Germany After the overthrow of Napoleon, a German confederation was formed. This comprised 39 states which were bound to each other by a very weak tie. The Union was not so strong, even as that in our own country under the Articles of Confederation. But there were two states in the German Confederation which were far stronger than any of the others. These were Austria and Prussia. Austria had been a great power in German and European affairs for centuries, but her rulers were now incompetent and corrupt. Prussia, on the other hand, was an upstart, whose strength lay in universal military service. As the century progressed, the influence of Prussia became greater and the jealousy of Austria grew proportionally. Bismarck, the Prussian Prime Minister, adopted a policy of blood and iron. By this, he meant that Prussia would attain the objectives of her ambition by means of war. Under his guidance, she would intimidate or conquer the other German states and force them into trade and commercial agreements, or annex their territory to that of Prussia. Bismarck looked for success only to the army. With the king back of him, he defied the people's representatives, ignored the Prussian constitution, and purposely picked quarrels with his neighbors. In 1866, in a brief war of seven weeks, Austria was hopelessly defeated and forced to retire from the German Confederation. In 1870, when he felt sure of his military preparations, Bismarck altered a telegram and thus brought on a war with France. The Franco-Prussian War lasted only a few months, but in that time, the French were thoroughly defeated. Many important results followed the war. 1. The German states, influenced by the patriotic excitement of a successful war, founded the German Empire, with Prussia in the leading position, and the Prussian king as German emperor, or Kaiser. 2. A huge indemnity of $1 billion was exacted by Prussia from France, and this money, deposited in the German banks and loaned to individuals, played a large part in expanding the manufactures and commerce of Germany. 
3. Prussia took away from France, against the wishes of the inhabitants, the provinces called Alsace-Lorraine. This wrong done to France, as President Wilson has said, unsettled the peace of the world for nearly 50 years. 4. The French people carried through a revolution and established a republic, for the third time in their history, which has continued down to the present. After 1870, Germany made remarkable material progress. By 1911, her population had grown from 41 million to 65 million. Her coal and iron production in 1911 was eight times as much as in 1871. In wealth, commerce, coal production, and textile industries, among European countries, Germany was second only to Great Britain. While in the production of iron and steel, Germany had passed Great Britain and was second only to the United States. But this great industrial and commercial advance was not accompanied with a corresponding liberality in government. The constitution of the German Empire gave very large powers to the emperor and very little power to the representatives of the people. Prussia, the dominant state in the empire, had an antiquated system of voting which rated men's votes according to the taxes that they paid, and placed political power in the hands of a small number of capitalist and wealthy landowners, especially the Junkers, or Prussian nobles. The educational system, while giving a rudimentary education to all, was really designed to keep large masses of the people subject to the military group, the government officials, and the capitalist. Blind devotion to the emperor and belief in the necessity of future war in order to increase German prosperity were widely taught. The mailed fist was clenched, and the shining sword rattled in the scabbard whenever Germany thought the other nations of Europe showed her a lack of respect. Enormous preparations for war were made in order that Germany might gain from her neighbors the place in the sun, which she was determined upon. Other nations were to be pushed aside or to be broken in pieces in order that the German supermen might enjoy all that they wished of this world's goods and possessions. Austria-Hungary The Austro-Hungarian monarchy in 1910 had a population of 49 million, made up of peoples and races who spoke different languages and had different customs, habits, and ideals. These races, instead of being brought under unifying influence as foreigners are in the United States, had for centuries retained their peculiarities. Germans comprised 24% of the total population, Hungarians 20%, Slavic races, including Bohemians, Poles, South Slavs, and others, 45%, Romanians over 6%, and Italians less than 2%. The Germans and Hungarians, although only a minority of the total population, had long exercised political control over the others, and by repressive measures had tried to stamp out their schools, newspapers, and languages. Unrest was continuous during the 19th century, and the rise of the independent states of Serbia, Romania, and Bulgaria tended to make the Slavic and Romanian inhabitants of Austria-Hungary dissatisfied with their own position. After 1815, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy continued under the rule of the royal family of Habsburgs, whose proud history extends back to the 15th century. Austria, but not Hungary, was part of the German Confederation, and her representative had the right of presiding at all meetings of the Confederation. Between 1815 and 1848, the Austrian emperor and his prime minister were the leaders in opposition to popular government and national aspirations. But in 1848, a serious uprising took place, and it seemed for a time that the diverse people would fly apart from each other and establish separate states. The emperor abdicated, and his prime minister fled to England. Francis Joseph, the young heir to the throne, 
with the aid of experienced military leaders, succeeded in suppressing the rebellion. For 68 years, 1848 to 1916, he was personally popular and held together the composite state. In 1866, Austria was driven out of the German Confederation by Prussia. Seven years earlier, she had lost most of her Italian possessions. Thereafter, her interests and ambitions lay to the southeast, and she bent her energies to extend her territory, influence, and commerce into the Balkan region. A semblance of popular government was established in Austria and in Hungary, which were separated from each other in ordinary affairs, but continued under the same monarch. In each country, however, the suffrage and elections were so juggled that the ruling minority of Germans in Austria and of Hungarians in Hungary was unable to keep the majority in subjection. Austria-Hungary has not progressed as rapidly in industry and commerce as the countries to the north and west of her. Her life is still largely agricultural, and cultivation is often conducted by primitive methods. Before the war, her wealth per person was only $500, as compared with $1,843 in the United States, $1,849 in Great Britain, $1,250 in France, and $1,230 in Germany. She possessed only one good seaport, Trieste, and this partially explained her desire to obtain access to the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. About half of her foreign trade was carried on with Germany. The low standards of national wealth and production made the raising of taxes a difficult matter. The government had a serious struggle to obtain the funds for a large military and naval program. Italy For a thousand years before 1870, there was no single government for the entire Italian peninsula. Although the people were mainly of one race, their territory was divided into small states ruled by despotic princes, who were sometimes of Italian families, but were more often foreigners, Greeks, Germans, French, Spanish, and Austrians. The Pope, head of the Roman Catholic Church, governed nearly one-third of the land. This condition continued after 1815, but during the 19th century, the Italians began to realize that they belonged to one race. They saw that the rule of foreigners was opposed to the national welfare. By 1870, the union of all Italy into one kingdom was completed. In this work, three great men participated, as well as many lesser patriots. The first was Garibaldi, a man of intense courage and patriotism. He aroused the young men of Italy to the need of national union and the expulsion of the foreigners. For over 30 years, he was engaged in various military expeditions which aided greatly in the establishment of the National Union. The second leader was of an entirely different character. Count Cavour was a statesman, a politician, a deep student of European history, and a man of great tact. He too wished for a united Italy, but he believed Union could not be gained without foreign assistance. By most skillful means, he secured the support of France and of England, while at the same time, he used Garibaldi and his revolutionist. He had succeeded, at the time of his death in 1861, in bringing together all of Italy except Rome and Venice. He won for the new Italian kingdom a place among the great nations of Europe. The third great Italian was Victor Emmanuel, King of Sardinia. He approved of a limited monarchy, like that of England, instead of the corrupt despotisms which existed in most of the Italian peninsula. He knew how to use men like Cavour and Garibaldi to achieve the national ambitions. By a popular vote in each part of Italy, Victor Emmanuel was accepted as king of the United Nation. The country was not ready for a republic, 
But Victor Emmanuel proved a wise national leader, willing to reign according to a written constitution under which the people's representatives had the determining voice in the government. In 1870, the king entered Rome and early the next year proclaimed the city to be the capital of Italy. Belgium. The country we now know as Belgium has had a very checkered history. At one time or another, it has been controlled by German, French, Spanish, and Austrian rulers. At the opening of the 19th century, it was annexed to the Kingdom of Holland, 1815. But a revolt took place in 1830, and the Belgians separated from the Dutch and chose a king for themselves. Their constitution declares that the government is a constitutional, representative, and hereditary monarchy. The government is largely in the control of the people or their representatives. There is one voter for every five persons in the population, nearly the same proportion as in the United States. In 1839, the principal states of Europe agreed to recognize Belgium's independence, and in a case of war among themselves, to treat her territory as neutral land, not to be invaded. This treaty was signed by Prussia, as well as by Austria, France, Great Britain, and Russia. The treaty was again acknowledged by Prussia in 1870. It was in violation of these treaties, as we shall see, that Prussian and other German troops invaded Belgium on August 4, 1914. France. In 1789, France entered upon a period of revolution. The old monarchy was shortly overthrown, and with it went aristocracy and all the inequities of the Middle Ages. A republic, however, did not long endure, and Napoleon Bonaparte used his position as a successful general to establish a new monarchy called the French Empire. After Napoleon's downfall, the Allied monarchies of Europe restored the old line of kings in France. But the country had outgrown despotism. A revolution in 1830 deposed one king and set up another who was ready to rule under the terms of a constitution. In 1848, this monarchy was displaced and the Second French Republic was established. But again, a Bonaparte, nephew of Napoleon I, seized the government and established a second empire, calling himself Napoleon III. He aped the ways of his great predecessor and tried by foreign conquest or annexation in Africa, Italy, and Mexico to dazzle the French people. But he was never popular, and his reign closed in the defeat and disgrace of the Franco-Prussian War, 1870-71, for which he was partly responsible. The Third French Republic was proclaimed in 1870 and is the present government of the country. Under the Constitution there is a Senate, the members of which are elected for nine years, and a lower house elected for four years. The President is chosen by these two houses of the legislature for a term of seven years. No member of the old royal families may become President of the Republic. The President of France does not possess nearly so much power as the President of the United States. Many of the executive duties are performed by the Premier or Prime Minister and other Cabinet Ministers. Republican France has become one of the great nations of the world, and its democratic institutions are firmly rooted in the hearts of the people. It has been compelled to face German militarism by erecting a system of universal military training. The patriotism and self-sacrifice of all classes during the Great War have been beyond praise. Great Britain During the 19th century, Great Britain did not experience any of the sudden revolutions which appeared in nearly every other country of Europe. For centuries, England, Scotland, and Ireland had possessed representative institutions. When reforms were needed, they were adopted gradually by the natural process of lawmaking, instead of resulting from rebellion and revolt. 
In this way, Great Britain had been changed from an aristocratic government to one founded on democratic principles. By 1884, the suffrage was nearly as extensive as in the United States. Parliament became as truly representative of the people's will as our American Congress. Far-reaching social reforms were adopted which advanced the general welfare. Among these reforms were acts for improving housing conditions, regulating hours of labor and the use of machinery in factories, and establishing a national insurance system, old-age pensions, and compensation to injured workmen. Great Britain was the first nation to experience the advantages and disadvantages of the new age of coal and iron, and the new methods of factory production. Her wealth and commerce grew at a rapid rate, and she invested her profits and enterprises in many parts of the world. The factory system drew so many workers from the farms that Great Britain no longer raised sufficient food for her population. She became dependent upon the United States, Australia, South America, and other lands for wheat, meat, and other necessities of life. Her merchant vessels were to be found in all parts of the world, and her navy was increased from year to year to protect her commerce and colonies. From now on, it became evident that England's existence depended upon her ships. If, in the time of war, she lost control of the seas, the enemy could starve her into submission. Hence, during the 19th century, Great Britain's policy was to maintain a fleet stronger than that of any possible combination against her. England's colonial system had been developed into a great empire. Principles of English liberty and representative government were carried by Britishers to many parts of the world. The American Revolution showed the mother country that Englishmen would not brook oppression even by their own king and parliament. During the 19th and 20th centuries, England adopted the policy of erecting her colonies into self-governing communities. Thus, the separate colonies in Canada, in Australia, and in South Africa were grouped in each case to a federal government, somewhat similar to that of the United States, and three great British democracies were formed within the boundaries of the empire. So successful has been the British system of colonial government that there has been virtually no question of loyalty during the Great War. All parts of the Dominions have contributed in men and money to the common cause, and frequent imperial war conferences have been held in London. In these conferences, representatives from the colonies and the mother country have joined in the discussion of important imperial questions. Turkey and the Balkans In 1453, the Turks captured Constantinople. Thereafter, their power was rapidly extended in southeastern Europe, and for several centuries they were the dominant power in the Balkan Peninsula. During this time, they overran Hungary and invaded Austria up to the walls of Vienna. They subjugated Greece and all the lands now included in Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, as well as a number of nearby Austrian, Hungarian, and Russian provinces. Many diverse races were included within the Turkish domains. They differed among themselves in language, religion, and culture. The Turks were Mohammedans, while their subject peoples in Europe were mainly Christians belonging to the Greek Orthodox Church. First driven out of Hungary and Russia during the 18th century, the Turks lost nearly all their European possessions in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The subject peoples had kept their national traditions and customs, and from time to time they aimed at independence. The Turkish rule was oppressive, and at times its methods were barbarous. If there had been no jealousies among the great European powers, it is probable that Russia would have occupied Constantinople long ago. The other powers, fearing this might make Russia too strong, interfered on several occasions to prevent such an occupation. But the powers could not prevent the smaller nationalities from attaining their independence from Turkey. 
Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Albania were freed from the rule of the unspeakable Turk and erected into independent kingdoms at various times between 1829 and 1913. Of her great empire in Europe, Turkey retained at the outbreak of the Great War an area of less than 11,000 square miles, less than the area of the state of Maryland, and a population of 1,890,000, which was almost altogether resonant in the two cities of Constantinople and Adrianople. Russia In 1914, Russia was an empire occupying one-seventh of the land area of the world and inhabited by about 180 million people. During the 19th century, the country was ruled by absolute monarchs called czars, under whom political and social conditions were corrupt and oppressive. However, some progress was made during the century. Serfdom, or slavery, was abolished from 1861 to 1866. Restraints upon newspapers, publishers, and schools were partially withdrawn. Natural resources were developed, factories established, and railroads built. But these measures only served to whet the appetite of the people for more liberal government. The activities of revolutionists and reformers were met by most severe measures on the part of the government. Thousands were transported to Siberia, and many were executed. Even as late as 1903, 5,000 persons were imprisoned, exiled or executed, for political activity against the Tsar's government. An attempt of the people to force a representative government upon the Tsar failed, after a seeming success, in 1905 to 1906. For the Duma, or Legislative Assembly, then created was given little power. Russia has not been fortunate in her relations with the neighboring states. Her great ambition, the occupation of Constantinople, was repeatedly balked by other countries. In an attempt to obtain an ice-free harbor on the Pacific, Russia brought on the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, in which she was disastrously defeated. In another direction, Russia was more successful. She posed as the protector of the Slavic provinces under Turkish rule and saw the day when nearly all of them were free. Russia is a country of vast territory, enormous population, and unbounded natural resources. But before the war, it had no experience in self-government. Its land and mineral resources were not used for national purposes. A small governing class, with the Tsar at the head, controlled its tremendous powers and wealth. Naturally, when an insurrection is successful against such a government, the people lose all self-control and go to great extremes. Liberty and self-government succeed only when all the people are willing to abide by the laws made by the majority. May this time soon come for Russia. End of chapter 1